telephone over to someone else that I know you want to hear. You know, as we come in AA, and I haven't been in it very long, just a little over four years, we meet the program, this wonderful program, and then we meet people. And these people that we meet, we sometimes meet uh, in a, a convention talk, or we meet them in a tape, or we meet them casually, and we have the feeling that this person has a wonderful message, something special for me, and I want to know him better. I have had that experience with a, with a number of uh, speakers in the past, and today I've had this happy experience with our speaker tonight. Now, I'm going to break his anonymity a little bit and tell you that he's a doctor. Now, I, I appreciate this, this wonderful fellowship, letting us physicians get up here and take over a meeting. You're taking an awful chance with it. But we're, we're going to try to do our best not to louse up this program. At least I'm going to do that for my part here, and I'm sure that Earl will too. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, doctors have something special in AA, that we have, this is a disease, and that we do have something special to contribute to the Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship. As a matter of fact, as I heard one speaker say one time, this, uh, the doctor was in on it from the very beginning. The fellowship itself was founded by a stockbroker and a physician. But he reminded us, a group of doc doctors he was talking to, he says, never forget this one point. The stockbroker was sober, the doctor was drunk. <laughs> and for me, I went to, to everything that we have to offer in medicine. I went to psychiatrists all over the country. I went to hospitals and institutions of one type and another, including the type of institution which C.D. refers to has this striped sunshine, the little jail, and I was never able to find my sobriety until I came here. And it is a, a wonderful thing for me. It has saved my life. I hear A.A. referred to as a way of life. With me, it is life itself. And I hope as long as you people that I love here in this fellowship will put up with me that I can keep on staying here and staying sober with you. Because through you, and the love of God, this fellowship, I am sober today. I didn't come here to make a speech. I came here to introduce a speaker, and that is what I intend to do now. We can't introduce a speaker without, without saying something about him, I guess. And all I can say about Earl is I've heard him once. He's wonderful. Those of you who don't know, he has made wonderful contributions to the fellowship. He's loved all over the country from coast to coast, and he has taken time away from a very busy practice in California to come here tonight and be with us. So I want to give to you now a devoted AA, a wonderful AA, San Francisco, California. Hello, you drunks. <laughs> you know, I uh, was coming down the elevator <clears throat> on the way to the banquet, and there was a couple in the elevator that I I didn't know, and I am uh, prone to uh, say very little at times, and I was way back in the corner, and <clears throat> slowly more and more people got on the elevator as we descended. And finally, we were packed like sardines, and this drunk said, uh, sober drunk, said, uh, this is certainly the essence of togetherness. <laughs> and it was. 
which reminds me of an old story I like so well. It was told by Icky Sheridan, who passed away here a few weeks ago, as he introduced Bill the second night of the St. Louis Conference. He said down in East Texas that they had a... Uh, they had a little town, but they had no place to put a drunk if one came by. So they decided that what they would do is to put him in the ice house until they could establish more adequate facilities. And that night the sheriff was home at his, at his table eating his dinner, and suddenly he stood bolt upright, and he said, Oh, Emmy, he said, I've left old Joe down there in the ice house. I've got to go down and get him out. Put on his hat and he ran down the street and he came to the ice house. There was this big, thick door with a monstrous handle on it, which with some difficulty he turned and swung open the heavy, thick, creaking door and way over there in the corner, a little drunk all huddled up down the corner, who looked up at him and said, for God's sake, close that door. I'm freezing to death. <laughs> So we, we go from isolation to togetherness, I suppose, in this fellowship. I uh, didn't realize this, but I, I have uh, a reasonable number of friends here from the Florida section who have come up to me and said, Oh, I heard you uh, give your blackboard talk in, in, uh, in Jacksonville. And I, while I could talk on some other things, I was instructed by the boss here that I was to give this blackboard talk, which reminds me of uh, an incident that occurred in California. I suppose you all know the great and glorious Chuck Chamberlain. Uh, when I see him, I ask him how he manages to stay sober without me, and he always says, well, the reason he stays sober is he sees me so infrequently. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> there was a time when he and I... Uh, went on a little speaking tour, and one night he would talk, and one night I would talk, and we would, the opposite one would share the meeting. We were in Sacramento, California. Chuck had talked, and I was the chairman, and at the end of the meeting, a little soul woman came up to the table with tears in her eyes and reached her hand up to Chuck and to me and looked at us deeply in the eyes and said, I have heard them all. I have heard Gandhi. I have heard Churchill. I have heard Roosevelt. And you two are the greatest. Well, our hat sizes tended to spread just a little bit. And as we walked down the aisle, beaming in our halos, we came to the back door. And right next to the back door was a little drunk who was drunk. And he looked up at Chuck, and he looked at me, and he said, For God's sake, why don't you two change your picture keeping me drunk? <laughs> so if anyone goes away from here because I gave the same pitch I gave in Jacksonville and gets drunk, it's Clarence's fault. <laughs> I'm going to tell you just a little bit about the last day of my drinking. I don't think that the rest of it would be of uh, great interest, actually. But the last day, 
It's a very sunny day in the exact mid part of June, and I had gone out to breakfast with my daughter, who was then a little tyke and she's now grown. And I had gone out to breakfast and I had had a wearing blender full of vodka fizzes and three double vodka martinis. I drank vodka the last several years of my drinking. It's not supposed to, uh, it's not supposed to smell your breath. Of course, it just reeks out through the pores, but it's not supposed to smell your breath. And I liked both sweet drinks and straight drinks. The taste was equivocal, but I kind of liked the burning sensation that went down my esophagus as it on the bottom of my stomach. But I always liked sweet drinks, and I, I, I was a little ashamed of this when I first came into AA, and uh, I didn't admit this to many people. But one time I read the book John Barleycorn by Jack London. As you know, Jack London was a drunk and died in acute alcoholism. And in this book, he said that he both ate candy, which I did, when he drank, and he liked mixed drinks. And I said, well, if it's good enough for Jack, it's good enough for me. So that solved that. At the end of the breakfast, I came home with my daughter. It was then late in the morning and started drinking some giant-sized Alexanders. I put a third of vodka and a third of cream to cocoa and a third of cream and a piece of ice in it. I didn't bother to mix it up. And I uh, drank these until about two in the afternoon or so. And then for reasons that I cannot explain, I went up the side of the hill. I, I live in a little town outside of San Francisco known as Mill Valley, and it's just that. It's in a valley, and we live on the side of the mountain. And up a little farther from me was a college fraternity brother of mine who had been an Alcoholics Anonymous for some seven months. I did not go to see him seeking sobriety. I certainly did not go to him seeking Alcoholics Anonymous. This was the furthest thing from my mind on this given day. I could enumerate many other days when I was exceedingly desperate, but to eliminate those, on this day I was not seeking sobriety. Why I went to see him, I don't know. He wasn't a particularly close friend of mine, but I did. And up there he uh, told me about his newfound sobriety. Now, it so happens that I am engaged in a <coughs> surgical specialty. This is what I do. I don't treat alcoholics, and I'm not interested in treating alcoholics. Uh, I'm in a surgical specialty, but my medical training is bilateral. <coughs> I was also trained in psychiatry. Now, I don't practice psychiatry, uh, and I never have hung out my shingle in private practice as a psychiatrist. I could. I belong to the organization, but I have not. But he knew about this training of mine, and he asked me about the 12 steps and 12 traditions, what I thought about them psychologically, and I recall I dissertated some length. It's rather vague in my mind. I didn't have a blackout this day. It was kind of a brownout, don't you know? That's what it was. He gave me a sheet of paper about the size of your program here, 
and on it were about 25 statements directed toward the active drinker. The such, uh, such things as, if you do such and such, then perhaps you can consider yourself in trouble. Well, I, he gave this to me for my education. And as far as I know, uh, and later asked him about this, he was not 12-stepping me. I don't think. Maybe he was, but I don't think. I took these home. By the time I got home, I, I, I was so drunk that I couldn't read them. So I had my wife read them to me. Well, I don't recall what most of them were, but I recall one. And it said, do not stop drinking for anybody else except yourself. Well, if somebody had taken a beer towel and slapped me full in the face with it, I could not have had any more of an impact. Then she read, do not consider yourself a martyr because you stopped drinking. And likewise, I had this odd, strange impact. Now, the other 23 of these 25 I have long since forgotten, but always I will remember these two. Well, I broke down and cried. Now, crying was sort of par for the course in those days. I would drive along in my automobile, and I would hear someone sing a song, and I would cry. <laughs> or I would hear someone uh, read a poem, and I would cry. Or they would simply give the station call letters, and I would cry. <laughs> Or I would look at my wife and daughter and cry. I suppose they looked at me and cried, too. <laughs> my wife is a very good-natured soul, and she put her arms around me, and she said, There, there, I think that you'll be all right. And then went on about her business. By this time, it was quite late in the afternoon, maybe five, and I went up the side, uh, we have a barbecue area out up on the side of uh, the hill on our property, and I walked up the stone stairs to the barbecue area. As I got to the top stair, I looked at my glass, and this happens to be a 13-ounce glass. It has, uh, oh, ice paint on the outside. It looks very cool, don't you know? And I noticed I, had, I still have it, too, uh, just a little bit of this Alexander left in the bottom. I decided to go back down to the kitchen to get another drink so I would have it there as I made the fire. As I turned around on the stairs, <coughs> an idea exploded inside of me. Now, it didn't just simply occur. I don't know what other word to use save the fact that it exploded. And the idea said to me, this is your last drink. Well, don't you know, at that instant, the craving to take a drink was taken from me and to this day has not returned. Now, it took me several hours to sober up, a good number of hours to sober up. But the, the craving to drink to this day has never returned. There were a couple of times in the first year where I thought that impulsively I might drink, but the craving to do so was gone. Well, I later went up to see my friend, 
not the same day, but some days later. A little piece of paper he'd given me, I still have in the safety deposit box as a memento. I went up to see him and explained to him my plight. I was a, uh, like many physicians, I suppose, I was a hiding drinker. I would take off for days at a time and then come back, uh, and a kind of a sneaky drinker. And he said, well, I knew you were drunk, but he said, I didn't really realize that you were as drunk as you apparently were, and I didn't see him often, and it's my want to more or less hide anyway, and I requested anyway that he take me to a meeting, which he did. And I'm going to describe my first meeting. Now, those of you who are here in, in Jacksonville, for a few minutes, can go back home to Jacksonville, I tell it, because you heard it. At any rate, there was a banquet table, one of these four-by-eight or three-by-eight tables, and there were four people at this meeting in Mill Valley. On this end of the table was a big, tall, lumbering, very gentle soul named Clark, and Clark was a butcher in the community where I live. This community has a population of some 8,500, a very small suburb outside of San Francisco. And on that end of the table sat a little bald-headed fellow named Shorty, aptly called uh, Shorty because he's only five feet tall. And on that end of the table, that side of the table, sat a man named Vern, who was a baker. Shorty was a carpenter, Clark was a butcher, and on this side of the table was my friend, who was kind of a self-styled inventor or a mechanic, and then there was myself. Well, I looked around at these low-lifers, and I thought, Doctor, what sort of an outfit are you getting yourself into? So I asked to be relieved, if I could, for a few minutes, to be excused. And Clark was very kind and said, yes, you may be excused. So... I walked outside the Wesley Hall at the Methodist Church where this meeting was uh, being held. I understood this meeting was about to fade. Membership had fallen so low. Just four people there. <coughs> Later it built up and it's now going concern. And I went outside and I took counsel with myself. Now I hope you will forgive some personal references, but this is exactly what occurred to me. I said to myself, do you mean to tell me that you've got to go in there and get help from these people, a butcher and a carpenter and a baker and a mechanic, when you're a physician licensed to practice in this great state of California? Do you mean to tell me that you, who are a diplomat or one of the great surgical specialty boards in this world, need to go in there? You mean to tell me that you, who are a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a fellow of the International College of Surgeons, indeed a member of the American Psychiatric Society, and you're a professorial status at the local medical school, you mean with all of this, you must go in to get a butcher and a carpenter and a baker and a mechanic to make a man out of you? And then I paused. And forthwith the answer came to me, and it said, you bet your life you do. And I went back then into that meeting, and never has a physician been so grateful to a butcher 
and to a carpenter, and to a baker, and to a mechanic as this physician. If I were to work 24 hours a day for the rest of my life, I could not begin to pay back to these four men and others for what they have given to me. Well, that's enough about me. Now, I'm told that we might gain something as a group if we were to discuss for a little bit how it is how it is that you and I have become powerless over alcohol. What's happened to you and to me? What is this business of becoming an alcoholic? How does one become an alcoholic? What is the physiological path that he must follow? Well, I don't know. Now, I, alcoholism and all diseases uh, are divided into three aspects. One is the emotional aspect, which we could talk about tonight, but I'm going to just minimize that aspect. The other one, all diseases have a spiritual component, and I'm not going to talk about those. But nonetheless, let us agree beforehand that because I am going to talk about the physical aspects of alcoholism, that we do not in any sense decrease our interest and knowledge in the emotional as well as the spiritual aspects uh, because they are as equally as important. But I can't talk about all three at once, so maybe we can agree on this. Now, I don't treat alcoholics, so what I have done is to avail myself of medical literature, which I would like to share with you for just a moment, and we do not know the actual answer that, uh, that uh, we seek tonight, but we know something about it. I've got this microphone on, and in deference to this other barrage here, I'm going to walk there and make a few things and come back so that we won't miss what's going on. Now, it's said, this is not a good thing. Not on? Is this on? No? Is it? It is said that inside of the alcoholic's body, there is an unknown factor. <laughs> now, there are those who say that the alcoholic to be is born with this, what has been called the X factor. Some authorities say the alcoholic acquires it over the course of time. I believe I'm correct in quoting Jelnick, who says that perhaps 30 to 35 percent of alcoholics possibly are born with a diathesis, a tendency to become alcoholics, while the remainder, the other 65 or 60 percent or 70 percent, may develop this over the course of time in their contact with alcohol. Nonetheless, there is perhaps an X factor inside of each person. Now, what's this mean? Well, it's felt that it, is, that it means that there are certain physical differences that you and I have as compared to the non-alcoholic. Now, what are some of them? They're all disrelated. One is that they say that you and I suffer from frequent periods where the blood sugar level is low. Now, we could go into this in some detail, but it's not necessary. <clears throat> Tremulousness may occur, perspiring, irritability, tension, whatnot may occur under these circumstances. It's also said that you and I run 
under, I'm talking about sober drunks now, uh, not the active ones, you and I run consistently a lower blood pressure level. Now, not all authorities agree with these two statements, but many of them do. This means a sense of heaviness, uh, a sense of uh, not being quite with it. How many alcoholic is, alcoholics have awakened in the morning with blood pressure low, blood sugar low, have felt like death warmed over, have gotten out the big book and assiduously read the thing from chapter to chapter to chapter trying to gain some kind of something, and then have said, I'm off the program. Well, they're not off the program. This is just, they, they need a little something to eat and a little exercise, and they'd be all right. But this is what often occurs. Now, it's also said that you and I are inherently more tense than the non-alcoholic. What they have done is to put chymographs around muscles, legs, and have measured the inherent muscle tension, also needles and muscles, and have measured the inherent muscle tension. So apparently, you and I are destined to be tense for the rest of our lives. We also have a fantastic requirement for fluids. Now, I'm not talking about alcohol now, but just other kinds of fluids. The non-alcoholic stands by and looks at you and me in utter amazement at our injudicious slurping of fluids. Coffee, orange juice, water. We constantly have something going into our big yaps all the time somewhere. Uh, it is said that, uh, that, uh, uh, that the incidence of baldness is less amongst alcoholics than amongst non-alcoholics. Well, we have bald alcoholics, but the incidence is less, they say. They also say that the incidence of obesity, fatness, is less amongst alcoholics. I'm trying to give some isolated findings of these physical factors. The incidence of fatness is, is less. About three or four years ago, I stepped out of my medical specialty and, and addressed the American Academy of General Practice, which was in Los being held in Los Angeles. Now, there's some five or 6,000 doctors in this auditorium, and I talked to them about alcoholism, explaining that I was not an expert, this was not my field, but I would then share with them what I uh, had, uh, had read. Uh, I also told them that the, at the end, that uh, when they enjoyed themselves that night at, the, uh, at, the, uh, at their various cocktail lounges, that uh, perforce, some of us would not be with them, to, to, but to please say hello to the boys in the white aprons. <laughs> at any rate, I mentioned these three rather humorous findings, that there are requirements for fluids, less baldness, less obesity, and the next day... And all the papers in the country and over all of the radio stations, it came out that I had said that if you're thin and you have a heavy head of hair and you're thirsty, look out. <laughs> I got letters all over the country, obviously from members of Alcoholics Anonymous, sitting doctor, why don't you investigate Alcoholics Anonymous? I didn't bother to answer these. It's also sad that you and I are given to periods of black and white, all or nothing, as an example. The non-alcoholic will cut his lawn, 
He'll cut a while, and then he'll see a bird, and he stands and he watches the bird for a while. And then his wife comes out and he says, Dear, she says, Dear, won't you continue to cut the lawn? And he does a bit until he sees a flower. And then he observes the flower for a while. And then his wife comes out and says, Dear, won't you please finish cutting the lawn? He does. He goes around a little bit more, and he sees his friend across the hedge, and he talks to him. Well, tea just happens. It's as though suddenly manna from heaven had come to us. It's as though suddenly we're on the golden streets of heaven. It's as though our right hand was in the right hand of God as we walked like a knotty-headed kid down the corridors of time, being sure that God is in each and every crevice of brick that is before us. This one drink does this to us. We get a phenomenal release from alcohol, and there are those who say it's because we have inside of our body this X factor. The same happens to a minor degree to the non-alcoholic, but it doesn't do that much for him. It does a little bit for him. There's no question about that. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I have a question as to whether you and I were ever social drinkers. I can't remember uh, once in my life enjoying a single drink. I recall in my drinking days, someone would say to me, uh, let's go have a drink. You know, I got kind of sick. <laughs> what for? Well, what, what's the point of a drink? What if I could anticipate an evening of drinking or a couple of days of drinking, and it was as though the top of my head had come off and I couldn't wait. Let's go. That sort of business. The one thing that the alcoholic does well is to know how to drink booze badly. We, we're, we're, we're masters of this. <laughs> now, at any rate, what happens to a person who takes a foreign substance into his body? Is this working? Can you hear? Well, what happens to a person? Over the course of time, he builds up into his body a tolerance. He gets so that his body literally can stand more alcohol than he could at a former time. And over the years, as the years go by, the tolerance increases so that on this day, the alcoholic requires as this much alcohol to give him the same effect that that much used to give him. In other words, he finds it necessary to drink more and more and more to get the same relief. The same is true of sedatives. The same is true of morphine. Tolerance grows up until finally the alcoholic needs more. Now, it's in this context that our disease rests. Yes, we have perhaps the X factor. Yes, we do discover alcohol, but once we discover it and we return to alcohol quicker than the non-alcoholic, because it does so much for us, don't you see, we then build up a tolerance over the course of years, and as we continue to drink, that tolerance increases so that the absolute physical need for, and make no bones about this, the absolute physical need for alcohol increases each day, and we become victimized by a true physical process. 
Now, it doesn't make any difference why the alcoholic starts to drink. Maybe the X factor is wrong as a theory. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. The World Health Organization has a definition of alcoholism which states, regardless of why the drinker drinks. Now, this is regardless of whether he drinks because he likes alcohol or whether he starts to drink because uh, uh, he's nervous or has the X factor or whether he starts to drink because his Aunt Emma put him backwards on the pot at the age of four. <laughs> it makes no difference. Regardless of why the drinker drinks, it is drink and the results of more drink that make the drinker drink more. Regardless of why the drinker drinks, it is drink and the results of more drink that make the drinker drink more. And it's about that that we're going to talk tonight. As the tolerance increases and as the alcoholic literally must put more booze into his body, he develops a series of symptoms which you and I have come to know as alcoholism. Now, if we were to put here on the board just a bucket, let's say, corresponding to the body, and let's say we pour into this bucket, or the body, one half ounce of whiskey per hour, or eight ounces of whiskey and so forth, and rather well, he gets the lawn cut. You or I are next door, flat on our back, and suddenly we decide to cut the lawn, and it's cut just like that. <laughs> and then we're just as quickly back on our backs again. There seems to be no moderation uh, about this whole business. Now there are varieties of other things. It's said that we have an abnormal form of what's known as aldosterone, aldosterone, which is a hormone uh, in the body, which has to do with fluid retention. The alcoholic is known for going to bed on one, I'm talking about sober ones now, one, uh, going to bed at night and awakening the next morning three or four pounds heavier, tends to retain fluids. And then, like as not, he's up uh, at the bathroom the next night and gets rid of all this and, uh, and feels much better. Now, uh, then there are a variety of other rather complicated findings, but nonetheless, these are a few isolated findings. Now, in diabetes at one time, they said the diabetic cannot handle sugar. Why can't he? He has an X factor in his body, and this is not, an, oh, this is not a new thing to medical science. And the X factor is something that we will use until we know more about it. And finally, in 1922 or 3, Banding and Best, two great physiologists in Montreal, isolated insulin and learned about the, the gland known as the pancreas. And the problem and the understanding of diabetes was now understood, it was, was clear, and the X factor was dropped. The same was true of pernicious anemia. But we're still in the X factor stage of alcoholism. What is this physical factor, if indeed it exists at all? Many authorities say it doesn't, but it may be acquired over the course of time. But nonetheless, we develop it or we have it to begin with. Now, those who have the X factor And if you add alcohol to this X factor, you then develop big A, which is alcoholism. 
Now, why don't non-alcoholics then? Why is it just one in 15 uh, are alcoholics? Why is it there's 70 million people in the United States who drink and there are just 5 million of us alcoholics? Incidentally, the population of the United States, we often are so proud of the fact that we don't drink. The population of the United States is 180 million, I believe. There are 70 million people who drink. That then means that there are 110 million people who don't drink at all. So we're really in the minority, even when we're sober, don't you know? At any rate, people go through periods of tension throughout the day, and I won't walk to the blackboard with her, but people go through periods of tension, uh, and <laughs> then uh, they linger in periods of tension, and then they decide what they're going to do about a given problem, and off drops the tension. This goes on throughout the day. You knew about this banquet, or you knew about this conference, and you said to yourself, shall I go, or shall I not? A little bit of tension arose in you, and then you pondered for a while in doubt, and finally you said, yes, I will go. And the tension dropped off. And if you said, yes, you'll go, you're here, and if you said, no, I won't go, well, you're not here, you see. But <laughs> nonetheless, the, <laughs> the tension drops off. And this goes, and sometimes tension that lasts over the course of years. What profession will I go in? What business? How many, how many wives will I have? What sort of a home? Where? How far in school? These are tensions that last over the course of years. Human beings have found a variety of things to cut down on tension. One of them is alcoholism, or alcohol. Now, the non-alcoholic takes a drink of alcohol, and his, uh, his tensions... Uh, it's it said that the inhibitions of life are alcohol-soluble. I'm quite sure this is true, even in the non-alcoholic. All people drink because it decreases tension. There's no question about this. And so the non-alcoholic's tongue loosens up, and he's a little bit more yakky, and he feels a little better, and perhaps alcohol is one of the saviors of the human race, except for us. Now, when you and I, in our supposedly pre-alcoholic state, uh, period of our lives, take a drink into our system, something fantastic helps of degree, don't you know? Well, the same thing is true of alcoholism. It's just a matter of degree. So the alcoholic usually has some money, and he's around making the drinks, and he's always at the source of supply in the kitchen. He has a group of people in here in the living room, and he's making the drinks, and he has about eight drinks on the tray, one of which is his. And he puts an extra slug into his glass or two, or doesn't even bother to measure it, because his tolerance is increasing each day. He needs it, you see. He needs it more. Finally, the drinks are made, and then on a given day, he discovers something that is destined to be his friend forevermore. And this is a small three or four ounce glass. It's thick. If you drop it, it doesn't break. And he takes this glass and he pours it full of whiskey or vodka or gin or what have you, knocks it off, and then puts this glass, it's a very precious instrument, you understand, on a shelf where it will not get injured. Then he takes the tray of drinks into his friends in the living room. Now, this is perfectly fine. We know why he does this. His tolerance and absolute need for alcohol is daily increasing. He must have the extra supply, and you and I know this, but he doesn't know it. He just does it. Well, one day he's mixing the drinks, takes his favorite friend, a small glass, 
fills it, fills it full of whiskey and knocks it off. And about this time, a non-alcoholic walks in and says, what are you doing that for? you got a drink in the tray. Well, uh, he says, uh, <laughs> it somehow seemed like a good idea. Well, I don't know. Well, we know why. He needs this extra slug. But because the alcoholic is sensitive, you know, the alcoholic is fantastic. The alcoholic can tell in an instant when somebody is laughing too much. Or he can tell in an instant when somebody is crying just a little bit too much. The alcoholic can tell somebody who is being unsquare and dishonest in an instant. You know why? Because he's the master of these things himself. He's learned this. He's learned this. The, the, uh, this is a way of life to him. <clears throat> well, the alcoholic senses that this person and perhaps all other persons like him disapprove. So the next time he makes the tray of drinks, here they are. His is stronger. He then looks out the door to see if anyone is coming, dashes in, grabs the glass, pours it out, knocks it out, puts the glass back, closes the cabinet, puts the whiskey bottle down, takes the tray of drink, and casually walks in the room. <laughs> now, the trick is to do this and not get caught. <laughs> and he finally worries about his people in the living room, and he says, I must protect them. I can see they're drinking more than they used to. So what I will do is to take this fifth and I will fill up this 13-ounce glass, and I will put it up here on a shelf behind this plate so that they will think there's none left because I'm concerned about them. <laughs> or he goes out to the liquor store, and once again he does not want to have an available supply all over the place, and so he buys a Mickey or a pint, and he puts it in the basement. After all, seldom do the guests go there. Or the glove compartment of his car, sell them to the guests, go there. Because out of his benevolent concern for his guests, he does not wish to uh, help them on the road to alcoholism. This is all known as sneaking drink. for ether, same kind of ether we use in surgery, rather rarely these days, but sometimes, ether plus H2O, water, equals alcohol, meaning that ether with an appropriate amount of water added to it, I don't mean you can take a drop of ether and add a drop of water and you have alcohol, but under appropriate chemical circumstances, that is how alcohol is made. So ether and alcohol are identical except for this very minor difference. Now then, one is, as we see, taking in daily because the tolerance is continually increasing. Let us not forget this. And by the way, the alcoholic's dilemma always is, how can he always satisfy his ever-increasing need for alcohol and maintain social disapproval? Or social approval, I mean. He gets social disapproval. How can he do this? And he absolutely never succeeds in this 
dilemma. Now, so we're taking into our bodies ether, uh, which alcohol, the two of them are rather related, you see, and slowly one puts to sleep the brain. Now, the first part, they say, uh, that goes to sleep are the frontal lobes where consciousness, as we know it, is located. And then finally we get back to other tracts here which have to do with muscle movement. And when that happens, one falls to the floor in numbness. As uh, Julian said last night, he took alcohol for his nerves. Sometimes he didn't move at all. <laughs> well, this is exactly what happens. And if it goes, you put enough of the brain to sleep and put to sleep the brain stem back here, you just don't wake up at all. You, are, you have done it once and for all. So that we then anesthetize our brains, and this leads to another symptom known as blackouts. Now, Herb said this morning, he did not have blackouts, and there are many alcoholics who have never experienced a blackout. By and large, however, this is one of the rather early symptoms of alcoholism, but it need not be. There are many people who have died in acute alcoholism who have not had blackouts. But by and large, I'm putting down here about the way they occur. Now, why, what is blackout? This means that one is on what is jokingly referred to as one's feet and is going about one's business, but there is no conscious recall about this business. Why doesn't the non-alcoholic do this? Well, the non-alcoholic gets sick and vomits long before and goes home and, and uh, so on because his tolerance isn't high. He can't stand this much. The alcoholic can. So blackout. What I've written on the board here is PDD. The authorities call this toxic dependent drinking with slipping control. <laughs> Doping, sneaking drinks, and blackouts. Now, the ordinary alcoholic, if he were to choose at this time to stop drinking forevermore, perhaps he would not need an organization such as AA. If you stop early in the game, some alcoholics can, you see. But notice, he must stop forevermore. Because if he continues to drink, his disease will get continually worse. Now, uh, the big book says, however, I think it's on page 35 or so, that the alcoholic or the potential alcoholic, with rarely an exception, is unable to maintain sobriety without spiritual feelings. So very likely even a person at this stage so early in the game where practically no one recognizes his disease, or very few if any, could not stay sober. But nonetheless, this is the early, early stage of alcoholism. Now the next uh, most serious symptom that occurs in the second stage is that of inappropriate drunkenness. Down here. Inappropriate drunkenness. This is when one says, well, I... I, I my boss is coming tonight, or someone's vital to me, is important to me, I, I won't drink tonight. I won't drink. No, says the alcoholic on second thought, I will have two drinks. Now, the famous two drinks are well known to the alcoholic. I remember Clark, the butcher, who's such a close friend of mine these days, he was a great two-drinker. He drank all day long. Didn't miss any work. He just drank all day long, continually. He was always in a state of drunkenness. But as he got home, he would buy a Mickey, a small half pint, and as he got to the bottom of his stairs, he would open the bottle and take two drinks out of it and put the bottle back in his coat 
then walk up the stairs, open the door. His wife, Jane, who now understands this whole problem, but of course then didn't, would reach out, grab a hold of him, pull him in and say, Clark, you've been drinking again. And he was, oh, no, I haven't, Jane, he would say. I've just had two drinks. And that's right, he had just had two drinks. <laughs> so the alcoholic then uh, takes, says, I'll just have two drinks, and then he awakens the next morning from a blackout. And God knows what he's done. You know, the blackouts are terrible. You wake up in, in strange hotel rooms. Now, it's often the old gag is that the alcoholic who awakens in a hotel room he looks around to size the place up. He doesn't recognize it, but all hotel rooms kind of look alike, don't you know? And he rings down to the bell captain for a newspaper. Now, the last thing in the world that the drunk who is in a, in a hangover is interested in doing is reading a newspaper. But he must find out what city he's in and what date it is. That's why he does this or to be driving along the highway and be sufficiently removed from the source of alcohol so that the anesthesia wears off and suddenly one is awakened driving down the highway. Or one wakes up in strange beds. So but anyway, getting inappropriately drunk is one of the most serious symptoms of the incipient alcoholism that we know. Then the alcoholic develops a symptom that is destined to be with him forevermore. Nothing, positively nothing, describes this, this symptom. The words terror, dread, awe, although they have lots of force, do not describe this symptom. It's a black, gnawing feeling which exists in the pit of the alcoholic's stomach, and it's known as remorse. The constant dread feeling of awesome remorse is destined to be with him forevermore. And about this time, he starts to shake some sweat. Well, the authorities don't know why the drunk has a shake and sweat. Some say that it's because of an upset in fluid balance. Some say it's due to some change in the midbrain. Some say it's due to, because, due to the fact that there's a substance known as acetylcholine, which exists between nerve endings and little muscle bundles, and this substance is responsible for refined movements, delicate movements, but when it is gone, and they say alcohol makes it go, that only gross movements are capable of being carried on. That sort of business, don't you know? He then reminds me of uh, a guitar player and a uh, famous clarinet player, both jazz musicians, sitting in a bar in the morning trying to get a drink up to their lips, you know, and spilling it all over the counter and then uh, having to uh, try again and so on and trying to get at least one drink to stay down. A non-alcoholic came in and observed this business and after some, uh, uh, some uh, interval of time said to the jazz musicians, not knowing that they were jazz musicians, but not knowing what was going on, said, by the way, what sort of business are you two men engaged in as you watch this shaking? And in typical style, the guitar player looked up at the non-alcoholic and he said, well, uh, I am a brain surgeon. My friend here is a watchmaker, you know. <laughs> so we have then remorse and the shakes and sweats that occur. All the authorities are agreed that at least 50% of the reason that the alcoholic has the shakes and the sweats is that he's scared half to death, at least, regardless of what the physical factor is. Then the alcoholic discovers 
a great relief. And that is that if he just had a little bit of the hair of a dog that bit him, he would be better. And do you know what? He's right. Nothing makes the remorse fade. Nothing quiets the shakes and sweats so much as an ounce or two of booze that will stay down. This just makes everything disappear. Life is wonderful. Remorse is gone. Shakes and sweats have disappeared. And so, one, this also appeals to the alcoholic's ever-increasing tolerance and need for alcohol. So, we then have remorse, and I'll put S plus S, shake and sweat. And then I'll put down here A, M, drink, morning drink. Well, don't you know that because the tolerance for alcohol and the need for alcohol each day increases, no question about this, and maybe very little each day, but it increases each day, and as a result of the need for more alcohol, you're getting a alcohol who's gulping and he's sneaking drinks and he's blacking out and getting drunk at the wrong time and feeling full of remorse and shaking and sweating and taking a shot in the morning, and you're getting yourself kind of a mess. As you, as you go along in here. And then one day, someone comes up to the alcoholic and says, By the way, aren't you drinking more than you used to? And the alcoholic says, Yes, but I, I'm tough and I can take it. Or the woman says, Well, I may be small, brother, but I'm potent. Now, you know, these individuals, you and I, are telling the truth. We can literally take more. There's an end in the very end of alcoholism where the tolerance drops off and just one drink gets the, the drunk drunk. But in this age, it's increasing all the time. So rationalization becomes part of our game. Then the alcoholic, and let's complete this formula. I just simply move that A down to the bottom, and I have alcohol plus CO2, carbon dioxide. The air that we exhale is carbon dioxide. In appropriate chemical amounts, if you add carbon dioxide to alcohol, you get table sugar. So alcohol, ether, and table sugar are identical, except for those minor chemical differences. Well, the caloric requirement of the alcoholic is satisfied by, uh, by his constant increasing intake each day, but there's no protein, there's no fat, there's no vitamin or mineral equivalents. But as a result, he goes into malnutrition. Now, to make this worse, there are three periods of normal lowered blood sugar. In the morning, in all humans, blood sugar is low. This means that one is hungry. One eats, has breakfast, up goes blood sugar, and just before lunch, it drops off again. This means hunger. One eats lunch, up goes the blood sugar, and later in the afternoon, it's dropping off. One uh, has dinner, and up it goes again, and about at bedtime, it's falling off again. Now, this is, a, this is normal in all people. Alcohol tends to eradicate this so that appetite is gone. So malnutrition becomes worse. Well, we could say then that the alcoholic, let's just take vitamin B2 deficiency. What is this? A sense of crying easily. Now we all cry, but I mean constant, constant weeping. And there are other reasons why people weep, but the constancy of it. A sense of impending disaster. Now, not just worried about tomorrow, I don't mean that, but a constant sense of impending doom. 
and it's all this growth which literally fill the individual's heart. This is just simply one. Vitamin B2 could take B6, B12, B15, A, D, to me. There's all kinds of protein. I'm just taking one tiny one of malnutrition, and you add that. A person who's crying all the time and filled full of doom and, you know, dread and all this sort of thing, and gulping drinks and sneaking drinks and getting blacking out all over the place and getting drunk at the wrong time and remorse and shakes and sweats and the morning drink and, and uh, thinks he's a great guy because he does it. And you really are getting yourself kind of a mess as time goes by. Always because the alcoholic's need for alcohol increases each day that he drinks, he must have more. So, we have then rationalization. I didn't write down here. Rationalization. We then have loss of appetite. Loss of appetite. And we then have malnutrition. We then have insomnia. Now, this is strange. Because the alcoholic keeps the bottle, if he's far enough along the line, near the bedside to take a drink so he can go to sleep. Goes to sleep, wakes up, takes a drink, and goes to sleep again. Wakes up, takes a drink, and goes to sleep again. And this happens repetitively until one day he takes a drink, and by gosh, he's wider awake. And he takes another drink, and he's still wider awake. And then he takes a big drink in order to pass out, and he can't pass out. And he can't sober up, and he can't go to sleep, and he's suspended literally between nothing and nothing. Now, about this time, the alcoholic decides that uh, maybe he should stop this drinking business. But the odd thing is that he now develops a series of emotional symptoms. Now, these emotional symptoms are induced because of the disease itself. Now, these are toxically induced symptoms. The symptoms that you and I have when we have a cold, we say, I'm not myself today. Or if we have uh, some other minor illness, we find that our personalities change. We as physicians know this. I operate uh, each day, and I, I see patients preoperatively who I know well, who have a given personality, the next day or two or three after surgery because they are toxic and are recovering from a major surgical procedure and an anesthetic. By the way, just one anesthetic. You know, you and I have had thousands of anesthetics. You know, <laughs> just one anesthetic, and we see that it takes two or three days before the old personality comes back again. Well, uh, these symptoms I'm going to mention are emotional symptoms, but they're induced because of the toxicity of the increased intake of alcohol. One of them gets us into more trouble than anything else, and that's the intense, burning resentment that we feel towards everyone around us. A completely insatiable desire to resent those who are near us. We can't do enough to harm them and hurt them and blame them. This gets us into more. It's no wonder that most general hospitals will not accept the alcoholic because he comes in and wants to run the joint, and he hates everything that happens there. But more and more, we're getting to the hospitals to accept them. And then there's one symptom that occurs because of the toxicity of the ever-increasing intake of alcohol, which literally fascinates the alcoholic. It literally draws uh, itself to him. It's akin to the fascination that some people feel when they're at the side of a building and they peer over, and there's an often a fascinating impulse that they might jump this sort of a business. It just 
fascinates them. And the alcoholic just pours buckets of it over his entire body, and it's known as self-pity. Now, the resentment and the self-pity that the alcoholic feel are, is phenomenal. About this time, the alcoholic senses something radically is odd about him. Now, the definition of anxiety is loss of self-regard, loss of self-respect, loss of self-esteem. An individual cannot stand this for a second, so he reverts to the opposite. And this is, oh, I must be better than, not different than, but better than other people. And the alcoholic is, is prone to walk into a bar, for instance, and sit on a bar stool and look at the person who is right and say, well, he must just be a beginning apprentice carpenter, and over here must be just a beginning apprentice plumber, but Einstein sits between the two. <laughs> that sort of, as he then falls off his feet and puts his head in the cuspidor, and the carpenter and plumber say, there goes old Joe again, that sort of a thing. <laughs> so, there's this thing, or the alcoholic is prone to say and look at himself and say, I understand that there's going to be the second coming of Christ, and I wonder, I wonder. <laughs> Resentment, self-pity, and godlike. <laughs> now, you have somebody here whose alcoholic intake each day is increasing. He must have it. He cannot live without it. And as he does so, he develops these symptoms slowly, 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 some quicker than others. He's gulping, he's sneaking drink, he's blacking out, he's getting drunk at the wrong time, so full of constant remorse, shaking and sweating all over the place and knocking off drinks at the most inappropriate times throughout the day and rationalizing he's a great guy because he does it, he has no appetite, he's in malnutrition, he can't sleep at night, he's still full of resentment, he's still full of self-pity and thinks he's Jesus Christ. <laughs> now, you have, a, you have kind of a problem on your hands here, you see, as you, as you go along. So then the alcoholic says, what I need to do is to get out of, uh, well, who wouldn't drink in Atlanta where it's a thousand feet above sea level? Who wouldn't drink in Atlanta where it's a thousand feet above sea level? What I need to do is to go to uh, Los Angeles. There it's at sea level. Ah, then I wouldn't. Then I won't drink. And the only thing is he takes Atlanta with him, and he goes to Los Angeles, and he gets just as drunk. He says, no, I was wrong. Atlanta may be the, the, the city that's on, I'm quoting Virgil now, that, uh, that Atlanta is the second, on the, uh, above sea level, the second highest city. Denver's next, the first, number one, apparently. I'll go to Denver, where it's even higher than good old Atlanta. But he takes Atlanta and Los Angeles with him to Denver, and there he is, just as drunk as before, and we call this the geographical cure. This second stage, I put TDD, toxic dependent drinking, without control. Well, there is still some control, but it's certainly slipping fast. Then we slip into the stage of true addiction. Only 3% of alcoholics are in this last stage. This is down here, 3%. This is the stage of true addiction. 
And here, the only thing that's important is that the alcoholic get alcohol. I put R-O-H there, kind of the chemical radical for alcohol. This is all that's important. Family's gone. Doesn't want to save face. The only thing he wants is alcohol. And finally ends up in jails and hospitals. Indeed, he may end up in jails and hospitals in the second phase or the first phase, but it's for sure that down here he ends up repeatedly in jails and hospitals. And finally, he gets Korshakoff syndrome and cirrhosis of the liver and delirium tremens and acute alcoholic hallucinosis and finally death. So, all of these last symptoms here, I don't have room enough to write them, the progress is always in this fashion. Now, let me just take this off here for a minute and let me just put a little parallelogram on the board. It put all the symptoms of alcoholism here. Gulping, sneaking, blackouts, inappropriate drunkenness, all the way down to death. And let us say that this triangle here is abnormal drinking. And this triangle here is normal drinking. Now, the alcoholic may be in this stage of his drinking career, let's say approximately there, approximately right in here, and 15% of his drinking is abnormal, and 85% is still normal. After all, the alcoholic doesn't do all this stuff all the time. 85% of the time, he's doing pretty well. Then, later on, he gets down to where it's 50-50. Let's say about here, which would be about this place on that scale. 50% of the time, his drinking is abnormal, and the rest of it's normal. Of course, during that 50% of the time, he does a lot of tearing around. But on the other hand, he does have periods that seemingly are normal. Or he may get down to here, where 95% of the drinking is abnormal. He's on skid row by this time. And 5% is normal. In other words, a skid row bum can sober up long enough to bum a dime to get a jug of muscatel wine. And then off he is again. So, one has to say this. But let me stop. What have I done here? What's this triangle? What's this little box there mean? It simply means that usually it takes about 15 years for the first symptom of alcoholism to develop, and usually the first one is gulping or sneaking or even blackouts, perhaps, about 15 years. Now, there are some alcoholics, perhaps these are the ones that are born with the physical factor, who develop alcoholism from the first drink, first month, first year of drinking. I recall once operating on a woman who was 73. Now, this is very young in this day and age, but she looked materially older, and... <clears throat> I gave her, I did a major surgical procedure on her, and I gave her a half ounce of brandy to take after each meal. Now, this is a perfectly reputable sort of treatment. creates relaxation of blood vessels, and while these days we have other medications to use, in those days it's perfectly reputable. This woman is a pillar in the Episcopal Church. Where is the priest? <laughs> pillar in the Episcopal Church. And had never had a drink in her life, and I, I truly believe her. Uh... Do you know that on the third post-operative day, this sweet little soul was peeling back the covers, 
and in her nighty, crawling out of bed when the nurse was not at the station, going to the station, taking the keys, opening the narcotics cabinet, getting the brandy bottle, taking a swig, putting it back in, closing the cabinet, and back in bed again. Three days. Now, this is very unusual, of course. So I just simply said to her, now, look, Mother, uh, you, you see this doesn't act too favorably in your body. And she allowed us how this was true. She had not had years of drinking, so it is simple to say, I will not take another drink. And so we switched to other kinds of medication, and she allowed us how I had better do that, and I did. Uh, but this shows how early, but usually 15 years of drinking. That means then that the incidence of alcoholism in 1963 reflects by and large that drinking that started in 1948, 15 years ago. Now, in some people, it takes 25 years or 20 years to develop the first symptom. But, nonetheless, I have enlarged that line. That line is the line of control. Once one steps over that line, and you'll notice the arrow, the curved arrow, going over into the first symptom of alcoholism, as far as we know, the alcoholic is cooked forevermore. He cannot go back to, if indeed he ever was there, social drinking. Forevermore, he will go in this direction. He will go in that direction. There is no returning. He has gotten to the point of no return. He has drunk up his right for a chemical peace of mind. And this holds for sedatives as well. Now, sedatives are great inventions. They don't work so well on you and on me because we are addictable people. Now, there are certain times and under appropriate circumstances where they can be administered by physicians, of course. And we are not saying anything about those conditions. After all, we have epileptic alcoholics. They need certain amounts of sedatives to avoid seizures, epileptic seizures, and there are other circumstances. But this doesn't detract from the fact that you and I need to keep in mind that from our standpoint, unless appropriate indications exist, that we should avoid sedatives. We have drunk up our right for a chemical peace of mind. Now, Distributed along this line of defense here, there are about 350,000 people, more or less, in an organization known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of them are at that first X up there, some at the second X, some at the third X, fourth, fifth. Those all represent various degrees of endpoints, which we affectionately call an AA bottom. You know, in AA we used to have what we called AA snobs. The low bottom snob said to the high bottom, well, what do you know about drinking? And the high bottom snob looked down at the low bottom drunk and said, yes, but at least I didn't have to go that far. Now, this is ridiculous, because those both these men are pregnant, don't you see? <laughs> it's, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just a matter... And if anyone here 
if anyone here goes to a meeting and hears a story of great horror, which we can hear in AA, and by the way, often the horror stories are overdone just a little bit, so subtract about 25% from the usual story you hear. We tend to overestimate and how we love to do it, don't you know? But on the other hand, if you hear a story and it's, uh, you say to yourself, well, I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. I, 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 I never went that far. I've slacked out a few times and I sneaked a few drinks and gulped, and had a, but I didn't go that far. I guess I'm not being an alcoholic. I say, hold it. If you have not gone that far, have hope you will <laughs> as time goes by. Now, what do we do about this business? Even though a person has come to the end point, he cannot stop drinking just without feeling great loss, tremendous loss. And here's where we have Alcoholics Anonymous. So we put two A's here. Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous fill with equal dependency those symptoms with a new way of functioning. And isn't it true that 28 years ago there were two drunken, worthless individuals, one a stockbroker, want a doctor. And the master of all came to them and said, I want you two to spend the remainder of your days accumulating around you degenerate, despicable, unsocial, egotistical, resentful, perfectionistic idealists who are useless just like yourself. And in the course of 28 years, I want you to have surrounding you approximately 350,000 such individuals. And I wish you to do this. And these two men who were on their backs looked up and said, Why? Why do you ask us to do this business? We haven't anything. We haven't self-respect. We haven't the respect of the community. We have lost all of our money, and we are useless. And so the Master of All said, Look, if I wanted someone else to do this, if I wanted the great doctors, if I wanted the great statesmen, if I wanted the great intellectuals of the world to do this, don't fool yourself. I could get them. I want you to. And as you build, this organization, which in 28 years will encompass 350,000 people, you will become known as the greatest spiritual movement of the age. And you will materially affect politics. You will be mentioned in all of the highly intellectual and educational circles as an ideal for a way of living. And you will find that frequently your way of living will be mentioned by those in the great legislatures of this state. And you will affect religion. But I promise you that to the degree that you think you have the greatest spiritual movement of the age, and to the degree that you think you are affecting the educational system, and to the, to the degree that you think that you are influencing legislative bodies and intellectual development, I promise you to that degree you will get drunk again. 
But if you do one thing only, and that is carry the message to the drunk that still sobers, that, that, that still suffers, I promise you a lifetime of glorious sobriety. And so these men sat down, and they wrote out a series of steps. We admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And isn't this true? Came to believe. Came to believe. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. And made a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves and admitted to God and to another human being and to ourselves the exact nature of our wrongs. And we're entirely ready in step six to have God remove all these defects of character. And in seven said, and humbly asked him, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. And in eight made a list of all persons that we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. And in nine made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so might injure them or others. And in step ten, continued to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly, promptly, promptly admitted it. And the eleventh says, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand Him, not as you understand Him, as you or you, as we understand Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. In other words, Dad, what do you want me to do? And give me the guts to do it. That's all we have to do. And having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these 11 steps, we tried to carry this simple message to other alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our faith. And so has built around these two men this great and glorious organization. And we forget the people that we owe great credit to. The doctor, for instance, who has written endless books on you and me, and we tend sometimes, unfortunately, to not appreciate what he has done, what he has added to our lives. And yet, the doctor, great knowledge he is, has not been able to give you and me the kind of sobriety that we must have. And the psychiatrist, who has spent endless hours trying to understand us, and half of our program is a psychological one, even these men, great and all as they are, barring a few exceptions, in general, are not able to offer you and me the kind of sobriety that we must have. And the men of the cloth, God rest their souls, they've prayed over us and about us and to us and in front of us and all this sort of business and have literally given of their lives for you and me, and yet these great men that we owe so much to, half our program is a spiritual one have not in themselves been able to give you and me the kind of sobriety that we must, we must have, like we have to have air to breathe and food uh, to eat and water to drink. And yet, you can take a bunch of irritable, self-pitying, godlike, idealistic, 
resentful, remorseful, perfectionistic birds and put them together in a room and with the exception of this place, most places where AA meetings are held, you and I wouldn't be found dead in when we were drinking, don't you know. We can get all these illiterate people, some very literate, but at least confused people around. And you know, if you have seven alcoholics around in a circle, you have seven conversations all beginning with the word I. You see? You see? All around like this. And you get all these people together of a, of a devious sort, and by God, we stay sober in the way that we need to stay sober. The very thing we have yearned for, the very thing we thought alcohol gave us, we get here in these kinds of meetings. Now, there must be a something. What is there then that makes this possible? When the great man that we owe so much to, the doctor, the psychiatrist, the clergyman, we owe so much to, we're not able to give Give us other things, but not the kind of sobriety we needed. What is this thing that exists? It's the kind of thing I see right now on your face, right this minute. And I can see it on your face over there. And I can see it on your face and your face. So I can see it right this second. The very thing I'm talking about. And as I shake your hand sometimes, and I, you look at me in kind of dumb amazement, I look back at you in dumb amazement, and it's fantastic. I recall going up here to Portland one time. I was going to speak at both a medical and a non and an AA group. And I had to meet two men at the airport. And I thought, how will I tell the non-alcoholic and the alcoholic? And I walked up to the waiting pair, and I could tell in an instant who the drunk was. And said, that's my boy. Now, the non-alcoholic was far more intelligent, far more in- uh, educated, but he wasn't a drunk. I could tell this. Now, what is this very thing I see around here which has brought sobriety to me and to you, those before us, and those who will come? Well, I don't know what this is, but there are those who would say, the very thing that exists right in this room, and I see it this very second, this very second I can see it, some would say, well, that's psychosomatic medicine. Or there are those who would say, what you see at this minute, Earl, is benevolent interpersonal relations. Well, maybe so. Or they might say, what you see at this very minute is group psychotherapy. Well, maybe so. Or there are those who would say, what you see is the essence of esprit de corps. But the thing that in, in magnificent doses, in glorious doses, is being thrown at me right this second to me, is the essence of God. God bless you all. by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day 
our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.